Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Um, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Ready? Read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God. We glorify you, Lord. We honor you today, God. Um, we ask that you would meet us here in a special way today. Father, I'm praying, God, that, um, that you would lift the spirit of heaviness, God, and give us the oil of joy um, for mourning, God. I pray that you give us beauty for ashes this morning. Um, Father, I pray that Christ would be glorified as we study and journey through your word this morning. Um, Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts to receive. Um, Lord, let us be encouraged this morning, God. Let us be warned this morning, God. Um, Father, I just pray um, that our that we would engage you with our whole selves this morning, God. That this would be an act of our worship as we listen and engage with God through the scriptures this morning. And so, Father, I pray um, that they don't hear my words, but that they hear the words of the Lord. I pray um, that your spirit would just work on our hearts, work on our minds, remove what needs to be removed, uproot what needs to be uprooted and Lord, let us apply healing where healing needs to take place. And so, Father, I pray that we would fully engage this morning, that we would not just be spectators, that we would not just observe casually, God, but that I pray that we would fully engage in what you're saying to your people this morning, God. And so, Father, we give you glory. We give you honor this morning. And this in Jesus name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. 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 You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Community on Mission, Community on mission. The interesting thing about the book of Hebrews that is different than other New Testament letters is that no one truly knows who the author of the letter to the Hebrews are. Not only do we not know the author, neither do we know who his specific audience was. What we do know about the writer of the book of Hebrews is that he writes from a pastoral perspective of someone who cares deeply about a congregation that he has an intimate relationship with. What we do know about the believers in this undisclosed location is that they are suffering because of what they believe. That life has become hard for them because they made a decision to follow after Jesus. And so the writer of the Hebrews writes this letter in a twofold manner, one, to warn them not to fall away from what they believe because of what what they're experiencing, And secondly, he's writing to them primarily to encourage them as they are being persecuted for being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the the, the reality that sets before this church is that they are on the cusp of either moving forward in faith in spite of persecution or the familiar route. They're facing the reality of going back to what they were used to. And so these people are Jewish Christians who once practiced a form of Judaism, which is 
rooted and based in works and not based in trust and faith in what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so because they are believers, they are living in a time of hardness and persecution. They are having a hard time with life and they are tempted to go back to what they used to believe. They, they may have been struggling with the idea of turning back, not to just what they used to believe, but also turning back to the way they used to live. Oftentimes when life gets hard, we are faced with the reality and with the decision to make, do I go back to what is comfortable to me or do I press forward and see what awaits me on the other side of faith and trust and hope in God. And so they are faced with this reality of either going back to their former way of believing, their former way of thinking, or going back to their former way of life. It almost seems like because of what they're going through, because this particular season of their life is really hard. And I don't know exactly specifically what the hardness comes from, except for them being persecuted and for them being ostracized. But it seems like they wanted some sort of release from the pressure of life and Christianity was not providing that release from the pressure. It's almost as if when they decided to become Christians, life got harder. Have you ever felt like, man, I was doing all right before I gave my life to, before I surrendered my life to Jesus. But now that I'm a follower of Jesus, life has gotten harder. Like, like I, I, and now that I follow Jesus, I burn the bridges behind me and I can't go back to my old life, but I sure do want to. Sometimes the old way seems like it's better because it's familiar and we can make comfort for ourselves in the old way of being. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them and warning them not to fall back, not to go back to the old way, not to go back to the old system, not to go back to the old places, not to go back to the old relationship, not to go back to the old mindset, but to embrace the new thing that God is doing in your life through his son Jesus. He is saying that the most beautiful thing in your life is what will happen when you press toward the suffering, when you go through the suffering, because there is a reward from God that is waiting you, waiting for you on the other end. And I want to say to you this morning that if you are feeling hopeless, if you're feeling down and out, if you're questioning, why do I even believe this? Why am I even in church? Why am I hanging around other Christians? Why am I trying this? Because I keep failing. I want to speak to you this morning and encourage you to keep going because there is a reward for you on the other side. Now, when I say there's a reward for you, I'm not talking about a new job, new house, new car. I'm talking about a reward from heaven that is being stored up for you now because of your faithfulness in the here and now in spite of what you are going through. And so he's warning them not to fall back, but he's encouraging them to press forward towards maturity, to press forward towards maturity. At some point in time, we've all been faced with this one simple question, is following Jesus really worth it? Is following Jesus really worth it? Because it don't seem to be getting better. Work is still hard. I still don't have a lot of money. School is hard. I, I'm at UCF. You can't finish. I keep switching my majors and nothing is satisfying me. I've been in school four years. I've had four relationships. None are working out for me. I keep trying to overcome these bad habits and they still are prevalent in my life. Is following Jesus really worth it? And the emphatic answer to that question is yes, it is. That what God has awaiting for us on the other side, what we go through now pales in comparison to the glory that is to come. And so I want to encourage you this morning to stick with Jesus, to stay with Jesus. He wants to encourage them. But the interesting thing is when he wants to encourage them, he don't tell them something like this. You got to encourage yourself. 
Sometimes you just got to encourage yourself. You've said that. You've told somebody else that. Somebody's told you that when nobody else will encourage you, you got to encourage yourself. But when I observe the text, when he wants them to be encouraged, he's not telling them to encourage himself. He's not even telling them that the primary way to get encouragement is to seek encouragement from other people. He's saying to them, the way that you get encouragement about the things from God is from God. That God should be your encourager. That if you need strength, the strength that you need can only come from God. And so he's pointing them to tell them to be encouraged about the things of God first has to come from the actual source, which is God. And so the first 10 and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews, because we picked it up in the middle of the 10th chapter, but the first 10 and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Why would he Start the letter off and use the first 10 uh, chapters of the letter about the supremacy of Christ. Well, if he's trying to encourage them, why won't he get to the practicality? Because first, they need to understand God before they can actually be encouraged in the things of God. And what better way to start than the author and the perfecter of our faith, which is Jesus. And so when we get to Hebrews and we look through the first 10 chapters, I want to highlight something in particular, and you can make a note of this when you go home, that maybe you should read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. I'm not going to read it here today, but if you're taking notes, I would write down Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 uh, through 28, and it's talking about Jesus being this supreme high priest, that Jesus is a high priest. Here's where we may get into the theological weeds, but I need you to stick with me. A theological high priest. This is important because he wants the people to know that they can actually go to God. And here's why that's important for us. You need to know about the high priestly work of Christ Jesus. It is because before in times past, before Jesus, when people wanted to go to God, they couldn't go to God directly. They had to go through a mediator. They had to go through a priest. They had to get in touch with somebody else for them to get in touch with Jesus. And so if they wanted to get to God, they had to get together with God's people and put some on the calendar, on the outlook. They couldn't go for themselves. So they had to have a mediator on their behalf. And so the people wanted to go to God so that they could have their sins forgiven. The problem with that, the people couldn't forgive their own sins, so a sacrifice had to be made. And so the people had to make sure that they were forgiven by going through a priest. And so they would go to a place called Tabernacle. Tabernacle had three things in the building. There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place, or as some call it, the holies of holies. And so in every area, a priest would go in to make, um, to, to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, and he would put blood, the blood of animals, on every wall to the got to every place, and then he would put the blood on a place called the mercy seat. And so he's spreading blood on there on behalf of the people. So he had to kill, an animal had to be killed. And so this blood was symbolic that for your sins, something has to die because God can't just look over, look over sin. God has to deal with sin. And the way that God handles your sin is to kill something. Something has to die. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so your sin is not something that God just haphazardly or casually just says, oh, it's okay. They're struggling. They need a little grace. It's all right. No, the only way a holy, perfect, righteous God that never made no mistakes can deal with sin is he has to kill it and punish it. God cannot stand sin. And so something has to die. And so guess what? The, the, the high priest will go into the holy of holies. But here's the thing. He could only go one time a year on the day of atonement. Atonement. Don't let that scare you. Atonement just means to cover. 
It means to cover. He would go in to make an atonement for the sins of the people by spreading the blood of an animal. Now, over the time of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, over a million animals were killed. And the priest had to go into the holy of the high priest had to go into the holy of the holies one time a year. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about what you did this week, all the sins you committed this past week. Think about it. You got it? Some of y'all need more time. It's fine. Some of us need a moth to to think last week. Think about that. The problem is you can only get your sins forgiven once in a year. So can you imagine wearing the weight of your sins the whole year and no forgiveness? That, that, should, that should crush you. Do you think about what you've done this month and you got to wear that for the whole year? That's crazy. But, but some of us don't feel the weight and the gravity of our sin. That's why we can't appreciate what Jesus did for us. But, but when you understand what he did for us, you understand the weight of your sin and how a struggle, how a mishap, how a bad mistake, how a, an offense towards God can weigh you down. But you got to wear it for a year. So here's what would happen on the Day of Atonement. The priest put on a robe. The people would tie a bell to the priest to the hem of his garment when he went into the Holy of Holies. This is real business. And he went into this place because it represented the presence of God. So they put a bell on homeboy. And so that's just like y'all want to get y'all sins forgiven. Y'all come to me. Y'all bring an animal, slaughter the animal, get the blood of the animal. And I put on a robe and I put on some bells and I go behind that door right there. And I put on bells. Why would he have on bells? Because he's going into the presence of God. And when he went into the presence of God, he had to come correct. Because if you went into God's presence in the wrong posture, you could die. And so they tied bells to homeboy so that when he went in there, they would know that he's still alive. They still heard the bells clinging. So if he went in there and if two minutes passed and there ain't no bells clinging, homeboy went in there incorrect. Y'all like, Pastor John, he, Lord have mercy. Not only did I go in there improperly, but your sins are still not forgiven. And that's the gravity of what they had to do. They, they could not for themselves go into the presence of God. The problem is they had to kill animals every year. But that's the issue. Why wasn't it a one-time sacrifice that was made that would cover sins for all times? Because the blood, the blood of bulls and goats would not suffice. It, it, it's, it didn't suffice. And so the point In the Old Testament, the sacrifices that you read about keep happening because it shows the insufficiency of animal sacrifice. How can an aimless, dumb animal take care of the sins of a human being that sins willingly? And so in order for it to suffice, you don't need an animal, you need another human. The problem is humans are sinful. So how is a sinful human going to go on behalf of other sinful humans? He would die too. So what do you need? You need somebody that can be a human but a perfect human. You need a greater high priest. You need a greater sacrifice. Enter into Jesus. And so when Jesus comes down, Jesus comes and he goes into the holies of holies on our behalf. But Jesus does not take the blood of an animal in there. Jesus goes and he sacrifices his own blood on our behalf. That's why John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 verse 29 when he saw Jesus, he said, here is the Lamb of God. He comes to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus becomes the animal sacrifice for us. And so Jesus goes into the holies of holies except for Jesus didn't go into an actual tabernacle. 
Jesus went into the very presence of God himself. He went into heaven on our behalf. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter nine. I hope you're still tracking with me. Hope you're still following along. Hebrews chapter nine, verses 24 to 26 will explain it for us. Here's what it says. For Christ did not enter in a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true, but into heaven itself so that he might appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time and at the end of ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The reason why you and I can pray on our way to work, the reason why you and I can pray in the shower, the reason why you and I can get on the phone and get on a prayer call, the reason why you and I can pray with our neighbor, the reason why we can hold hands in church and pray and get God's attention is because Jesus went into the presence on our behalf. So you just take for granted that you can talk to God whenever you want to. But do you know that they couldn't do that then? So for us to say that we can go to God personally and engage with God and go into his presence is a radical idea. And we have the opportunity daily on a regular basis at all times to go into the presence of God and we don't even do it. You ever thought about that? That you, you know you, you know your past, you know your present. You know everything about you. You know stuff about you that nobody else know. You know every dream you've ever had. You know every bad intention you've ever had. You know everything that you've done. And God says, the God of the universe, the creator of the world, says you can come into my presence boldly. That's crazy because God can't stand sin, but he lets you in his presence. How crazy is that? But we can get there because of what Jesus did for us. We can get there because of his one time greater sacrifice. And so Jesus was both the high priest and Jesus was a sacrifice. But the tension in the text is that they didn't want that no more. They wanted to go back to the old way because the old way meant that they didn't have to go through persecution. And so they would rather work for their salvation than rest in the finished work of Jesus. And some of us struggle with that tension today. I would rather do my own way of Christianity. What I've realized over time is that people don't practice Christianity of the Bible. People practice Christianity of preference. And so scripture doesn't inform and shape our worship. Our feelings do. But God has made a way and he has put parameters around the way that we can approach God. And so the first way of encouragement that he wants them, he gives three exhortations for them to be encouraged in Christ. And here's what it says in verses 19 through 22, if you have a Bible and you brought it to church this morning. Here's what it says, verses 19 through 22. It says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The number one way of encouragement is to draw near to God. Point number one is that we must draw near to God if we are going to be encouraged. We must draw near to God. We can draw near to God because of the faith we have in what Christ did for us. We can draw near to God because of the faith we have in what Christ has done for us. And 
because we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are in unity with the Lord Jesus Christ and solidarity with him, we have freedom to enter into God's presence anytime we want. We don't have to keep our distance from God. I think that's good because back then when the priests went in to get their sin, to forgive the sins of the people, the only thing that the animal sacrifices could forgive were sins of ignorance. When we sin and we didn't know we were sinning. But if you sin intentionally, the sacrifice of the animals didn't cover that. If you purposely did something, if you purposely hurt somebody, if you intentionally made a decision that you knew was offensive to God, if you say, Lord, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Anybody ever said that before? Nobody in this service. Surely in the nine o'clock they did. But because of Jesus, it doesn't just cover the sins of ignorance, it covers the sins of our intentions as well. Th th that's beautiful. We, we, we are more than forgiven for the things in ignorance. But, but let me say this, although our sins are forgiven if we commit them intentionally, let me say this, I got a caveat for you this morning, pay attention, it's not an excuse to willfully sin. That's not a, that's not a get out of jail free card. To willfully sin, here's what this means, and here's what it communicates, to willfully sin means that I truly don't grasp the high price that was paid for us to be forgiven. I don't understand what it took for my sins to be forgiven, so therefore I will not sin willingly. It also communicates that possibly, hear this, we may not actually be saved at all. If you intentionally sin day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, and it doesn't bother you, I'm sorry, brother, I'm sorry, sister, chances are you might actually not have a relationship with Jesus. If your mindset is, well, God going to forgive me anyway, you might not actually be a believer. That's not to say you won't make a mistake, but it is to say you will be bothered by it when you do. That, that something on the inside of you that God gave you when you got saved called the Holy Spirit will bring your attention. Hey, you got to stop. You can't keep going. Turn, turn, uh-uh. Go back, go back, go back. Because the Spirit of God is more powerful in you than what's on the outside. And so when we just willfully sin, we deny the power of the gospel. What we're saying is transformation really didn't happen for me. I just was trying to get out of hell free card. I just needed a little fire insurance. But when you've been saved, when you've been saved, sin breaks your heart. Sin will bring tears to your eyes. You will repent of your sin faster than you will linger in it for a long extended period of time. That's not to say that your natural inclination, you don't struggle with certain stuff. You don't struggle with jealousy. You don't struggle with lust. You don't struggle with lying. You don't struggle. It's not to say you don't struggle with those things and not to say that some issues aren't bigger than others. But what it does is you never give up the fight. That you fight until you get victory. And we don't fight for victory over sin. We fight from victory because of what Christ has done. And so our posture should be, I am already victorious, but because I know that I am forgiving, I can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy in my time of need. That because of what Christ has done, I have confidence in my access to God that I don't have to tiptoe with God like I got in trouble. You know how it was. Have beef with your parents. You're younger. And uh, you got to test the waters to make sure you back good. Or you could get another whooping, right? Some of our parents whooped us for the past, present, and the future, right? And so some of us know what it's like to get whooped on every syllable. I told you not to go down. I was like, God, Lord, you never talk this slow in your life. Oh, my God. 
And so we tiptoe to make sure hope I'm back good. But what Jesus did was so efficient, so effective, that even after we messed up, we can go to God like we never messed up before. That, that we can go boldly to the throne of grace, that we can have confidence in our access before God because he's accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And so when Romans 8.34 reminds us of this, here's what Romans 8.34 says. It says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Jesus is praying on your behalf. I know you ask other people to pray for you. And we're in a culture, and we should, like, I'm, I'm not, don't hear me knocking it. You should ask other people to pray for you because there's power in prayer. And there's something that God doesn't pray. You should ask people to pray for you. It's, it's okay to ask people to pray for you. It's okay to ask your family members to pray for you. It's okay to ask the brother, sister in the church to pray for you. But more than that, you need to have confidence that Jesus is praying for you, that he is sitting right there at the right hand of Father making intercession for you when you don't even know what to say to God yourself. That, that he is praying for you can have access that your prayers are being heard because of what Jesus has done and where Jesus sits in position to God. You can have confidence in that. You can go to, to God in confidence because of, of Jesus Christ. You can also go to God in confidence because he is our advocate. The, the book of Hebrews tells us that he was touched like uh, he was uh, tempted with. Uh, he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities uh, in all points, yet without sin. That Jesus, when he came to earth, he didn't just go flawlessly through, never faced nothing, never dealt with nothing. But he was tempted just like we are, yet he never sinned. So Jesus can feel what you and I feel. Jesus. Jesus knows that the struggle is real for you and I. And so that's a beautiful thing because God is not some abstract figure. He's not some out of touch deity. He's not some cosmic thing in the air that we hope is real or that we don't know is real or we can't be sure about. We can know that when God sent his son for us, he got in a human flesh suit. He felt everything that we feel. He went through all of the temptations, but he never succumbed to it. Like, that's a beautiful thing to know that when I go to God, I'm not going to a God that's out of touch with my reality, but I'm going to a God that knows that I'm struggling and he can feel me. And he is a merciful high priest that he's not just going to hear my prayer. He's not just going to see my need, but he's going to do something about it. That's a beautiful thing that we can have confidence in our advocate. We can have confidence in our access and have confidence in our advocate. And so what he's trying to encourage them to do is to seek God in prayer, that even if we mess up, we can come to God boldly, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. So the first thing he wants us to do to be encouraged is to draw near to God. The second thing that he wants us to do is he wants us to hold on to our hope in God. He wants us to hold on to our hope in God. Here's what he says in verse 23. He says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Since he who promised is faithful. And what he's saying is, the proof of your being saved, the proof of your salvation is that you hold on to the hope of what you say you believe no matter what happens to you in your life. That no matter how hard life gets, you still hold on to Jesus. That no matter what season life brings to you, you still hold on to your faith and you keep your hope in God because he's faithful and he's not a man that he can lie. That if Jesus said it, then it, you can count it. You can take it to the bank. His word is good. His word is true. His word is faithful. And so we have to anchor our hope, not in ourselves, not in our own ability to believe, but in the precious and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Like your hope can't be in you. Your hope has to be in God. And hope in the Bible is not like hope in our world like we hope to get a job. We hope to get a new car. We hope to get a new apartment. We hope to get a house. We hope to get married. We hope to have children. We hope to get a job promotion. That ain't really hope. That's actually wishing. 
That's actually wishing because those things are out of our control. But biblical hope ain't a wish. We ain't wishing Jesus is coming back. We're waiting on him to come back. Why are we waiting for him to come back? Because he's our hope. And we know that our hope in God is certain. You don't have to give up on God because God is faithful. You can root and anchor your hope in Jesus Christ because he is faithful. He's faithful. He is faithful. Here's what it says in Hebrews 6, 19. Here's what it says. It says, we have this hope as an anchor, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This is a call for us to endure whatever it is that we go through, that we can endure hard times in this life. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Some of us are at the doorstep of faith. And some of us are right at the exit ramp of unbelief. Some of us are right at the doorstep of faith. I believe God. I believe what he did. I believe Jesus historically, theologically. I know it's true. And I want to surrender my life, but I'm scared. I know it's the best thing for me but I'm scared because I might have to leave something behind. I'm right there. I know I want to get, the spirit is nudging me to just dive in completely and not worry about what happens, but I'm scared. What if I leave behind this thing? What if I miss it? What what if I feel pain if I I detach myself from it? What, What if I stop trusting in how I can make this thing right on my own. What, what, what if I stop? What will happen to me? What, what, you know what that's saying? That you don't really trust God. Because when you trust him, you know if he's a loving father, he's going to look out for you. That God is not going to drop you for doing the right thing. And some of us today need a spiritual nudge to just push us over into the water. And it's okay if you can't swim. Because if I'm going to drown, I'd rather drown in Jesus. But there's other, other, others of us in the room that our struggle is not being on the cusp of actually surrendering fully to Jesus. Some of us have said with our mouths that we surrendered. But now that life is hard, we're in the exit ramp of unbelief. And now some of us are doubting if we ever really believe that life is squeezing the pressure out of us And the most logical and reasonable thing for us to do right now is walk away from the faith. If I just walk away, maybe nobody, because I haven't been in community with other believers, maybe nobody knows I'm missing. Life is hard right now, and I'm trying to do this Christian thing, but these struggles keep popping up. I keep failing. I'm having more failures than success. I don't have money. I don't have the job I want. I'm still struggling. I got family issues. I can't trust nobody. The best thing for me to do, I think, is walk away because this Christian thing ain't working out for me. And he's trying to warn those people that if you've made a confession, then you hold on to it. You hold on to it for dear life. He's saying don't give up because the alternative is not going to work out for you. He's trying to encourage them. If you feel like you're about to walk away, if that seems like the better thing to do, don't listen to your flesh. Don't listen to it, but stay right where you are. Sometimes the greatest blessing is waiting God out. Is waiting God out. What would have happened if you would have gave up in a previous season of your life? Where would you be? Where would you be if you went back into the club every weekend? Where would you be if you went back into that 
toxic relationship every day. Well, what, what would you still be? Well, what if you would have never left where you came from to escape what you escaped? What if you would have never left? What if you never followed the call of God to leave behind? The, what, where would you be right now? When you consider and when you count the cost, do you think it was better for you to stay there or do you like what you've seen in Jesus? Did that give you hope? Did that, did that give you joy? Did that give you joy when it was hard or was joy something that you had to run through, run to something else to find joy? Did you have to pick up your pet habit and rub it again to get comfortable and get some more joy? Was joy over here based on when everything went right? Joy on this side says everything is going wrong and I still feel good. Everything is still good. I mean, I got my life. I got my right mind. I got peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm about to punch somebody in the face, but I don't punch nobody in the face. It's a mystery to me. Stay right there. Stay right there. Stay right there. So he wants us to draw near to God for encouragement. Because of our faith in what Jesus has done. He wants us to draw near to God. He wants us to hold on to our hope in Christ. Let us draw near to God because of the faith we have, faith of what we have and what he's done. Secondly, hold on to our hope. And thirdly, he wants us to love one another. Now, the interesting thing is you can do, you can do faith and hope by yourself, but you can't do love alone. How do you know you love somebody if you ain't never around nobody? Well, I love God. That's all that matters. Well, according to scripture, God said that ain't enough. You must love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus don't say it's either or. He says it's both and. And so he calls us for encouragement to love one another. Here's what it says in verses 24 through 25. He says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. I want to read that verse again. Verse 25. If you got a Bible, I want you to read it out loud with me. Verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Man, why would he say that? But encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want you to notice something in this letter. He says, let us three times, let us draw near. Let us watch out for one another. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without waving. He keeps saying let us and what he's trying to say to us is your salvation, your growth in Christ is a community project. It's just about my personal relationship with God. I'm going to church to get a personal word for me. Liar. The devil is a liar. God didn't call you to walk through life by yourself. And he didn't call you to walk through this Christian journey by yourself. That's not a thing. Turn off the internet. Can you turn off the internet? Oh, whatever. So he's telling us to look to fellow believers for to be a source of encouragement. They shouldn't be first, but they should be a part of your encouragement to look to fellow believers. And he says, don't neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Wait a minute. This is a pastor writing to a church. The crazy thing is that inconsistent church attendance is not a new phenomenon. That, that ain't a new thing. That Christian since the beginning of time have been skipping out on gathering with the saints. Ain't that crazy? But here's the difference between them and us. They have perceived real reasons to second guess and consider if they should be gathering with the saints regularly. Because they face real persecution. They could die on the way to church. 
They could be ostracized from their community and ostracized from, your fa- from their families. Can you imagine if you went back to your neighborhood or to your apartment complex today and they wouldn't let you in because of what you believe? Can you believe, would you believe if you called? These are Jewish Christians. They walked away from something that they already believed into something new. Can you believe it? Okay, what if you called home today and told your family member, the close family member you have, that you are a follower of Jesus now and they hung up their phone on you and they never picked it up again? Would you be okay? Would you be, are you willing to, are you willing to die for what you believe? Because that's what they were. And he's telling them, you need to be able to be with other believers so that you can be encouraged in the faith. You can't do it by yourself. You face ostracism, persecution. You, you deal with all of these things. You might even die for what you believe and you cannot go at that by yourself. You need other people. So when the church sets something in place like life groups, shameless, unshameless plug, you should be there. I'm tired. Everybody that teaches life group is tired. I'm tired. You're not more tired than the rest of us that show up. I'm tired. Okay, if you're tired, we're extra tired. Because we don't only just serve on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We serve throughout the week and on Sundays. I wish, some of, some of us wish we had the luxury to kick our feet back every Sunday and not do nothing. Oh, I'm tired. I'm so sleepy. I had a long day. But you got out of class at three. <laughs> oh, I'm so tired. I have a job now. Welcome to the real world. We all got jobs. Your bills ain't going to pay themselves. Oh, my God. I'm so tired. Would you rather be tired because of your faith or die because of it? One of the interesting things historically that I read about this text was that sometimes people neglected to gather with the rest of the believers because of a preoccupation with their business affairs. I had to work late today. Really? What time you got off? 5.05? Oh, I'm just so tired. You're not more tired than Jesus on the cross. No matter what they went through, the writer still tells them, gather together. Don't neglect it. It's good for you. You can't grow without it. You can't do it by yourself. They were willing to die for it. There is something special that happens when the saints meet together for worship on a Sunday morning. There's something special that happens when the saints gather around the studying of the word throughout the week. There's something special happens. You know what happens? God meets us there. We get to see the transformation of other lives right before our very eyes. We're looking for miracles with people, limbs growing back, and people that couldn't walk can walk now, or deaf people can hear now, and blind people can see now. You know what the greatest miracle is? Seeing somebody go from death to life right before your eyes. But you will never see it or appreciate it if you're only here on Sunday mornings. And let me say this about the worship gathering while we're at it. Um, um, You don't come to church and just start worshiping when you get here and we got to work you up to worship. Do you know the interesting thing I love about baseball? When a pitcher is getting ready to pitch a game, he doesn't throw the first pitch when the game starts. He's been in the bullpen warming up for a long time. He's already in a groove. What are you doing on Saturday nights? I don't want you to answer that question. I'm just, it's rhetorical. What does your Sunday morning drive to work look like? You listen to the new, the, the, the new Yo Gotti on the way to church? You trapping on the way to church? You should be trapping for Jesus. 
Are you slanging them scriptures? You get in the bag? A bag of Bibles, I hope. Is it a bag of communion? What is a bag of? A bag of tracts to pass out to unbelievers? Chasing this bag. You need to be chasing Jesus. You're going to die chasing that bag. That bag is elusive. What profit a man to gain the whole bag and lose his soul? That need to be a t-shirt. Somebody put it on a t-shirt. But it is special when we can gather together as saints. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He, he died for what he believed. He died in a German concentration camp. Here's what he had to say about gathering with believers. He says, it is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in the world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they went with the multitude to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept the holy day. Therefore, let him who now has the privilege of living in common the Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers. It is a beautiful thing to be able to join and gather together. Because somebody this morning woke up in Asia and couldn't even leave their community and go to church because of disease. There are people dying every day in China in a neighborhood because of disease. But you woke up this morning and drove here disease free. The, you can actually talk and we can hear you. And the Bible says, let everything that includes you that has breath, praise the Lord. But why are you silent? Are you dead? Because if God has made you alive, there should be something that comes from your mouth that ruminates out of your heart. That, that you should be glad. I'm glad I get a chance to worship. I got here, I got clothes on, my limbs work, my hands can raise, I can open my mouth, I can open my eyes and see. I have something to be thankful for. Oh, but you only praise when you got money that you want. Some of us can only praise when we have somebody else. But can you praise because you have Jesus? Can you praise God because of Jesus and Jesus alone? If everybody leaves, if everybody walks out, if you lose everything, can you still praise God? So we have to get to this place that when God grants us the opportunity to come into his presence together, knowing that he meets us there, there shouldn't be a silent person among us. And He's calling us to this. It's not just for the sake of gathering. He's telling them what to do, that they should provoke one another to love and to good works, that they should encourage each other, push each other hard to love and to good works, that, 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 that we should not be cavalier towards each other, that we shouldn't be indifferent towards each other, that we shouldn't be uh, uh, reluctant towards one another. But he's saying, he's saying, provoke each other to love and to do good works. He's saying, be strong in your encouragement to one another. Have something good to say. Pick up your brother or sister. At least try to be devoted to one another. Let the way you live and the way you talk be a source of encouragement that provokes other people to follow Jesus. But one of the issues that continually faces our generation and our church is that we think we're okay by ourselves. 
but you're not. You don't just need Jesus. You need other people. No Christian is an individualist. Amen. He says provoke someone to love. It gives the idea that love is a communal, a communal activity. That love can't be practiced in isolation. I love myself. I love me some me. So ridiculous. <laughs> You're really special. <laughs> Gotta love myself first. Good. How's that working out? If you love yourself first, if you love yourself, if you love you some you, you wouldn't be. <sighs> but he calls us to love and developing a loving attitude and a loving spirit is a communal activity. How do you know how to love if you can't practice forgiveness? How do you know how deep you love somebody until they hurt you and you got to forgive them? How do you how how do you know that you really love somebody? Unless they get on your nerves and you want to slap them, but you say, God bless you. Ooh, some violent spirit in here. (laughs) Jesus. Ooh, we need a police officer ministry. You know how unbelievers, you know what's the most attractive thing to unbelievers about Christians? Or what should be? The way we love each other. Here's what John said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. He says this, if anyone says, I love God, you, I'm sorry. Uh, He says, anyone says, I love God, you love God, what's wrong with you? He says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. You love, you lie. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen, can't, impossible to love a God that you cannot see. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. I love God, I just don't do them. I just don't do them. Well, you know what that means to me? You don't do God either. And you know what God is doing? (sighs) But if you're doing this, God is doing this to you. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get them out of a state of a spiritual arrested development. That for some Christians, they get saved and this is as far as they go. They don't go no further than this. Whoo. Look at hell behind me. Thank God. I'm going to stay right here for the rest of my life. I'm not taking a step closer. I'm not reading no Bible. I'm not saying no prayers. I'm not showing up to church on time. I'm not participating in praise and worship. I'm not going to small group. I'm doing Sunday morning and that's just my lane right here. I'm right here with it. Sunday morning, I'm right here with it. This, my, this is me and Jesus right here. I'm not doing no cha-cha-cha. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I'm right here. I'm right here. This is my spot right here. But I need you to dance like the man in Hitch. When Will told him to do this, he, he bust the... 
Bust a move. I need you to do that about Jesus. I need you to do that. The mission of our church, the first part of our mission says we exist to help people grow in Christ. That, that it implies that there's no neutrality in the Christian life. That either you are growing or you're deteriorating. There ain't no neutral in Jesus. Because when you don't grow and you don't change, you deny the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transform you. And Jesus didn't just save you to save you. He redeemed you to a new life in a new way. And so we have to draw near to him. The danger in not gathering with the saints is the second reason he writes this book, to warn them of apostasy. Don't get afraid. And I'm almost done. Apostasy means to fall away from the faith. It means that I once confessed that I believe something, but I now no longer believe it. That I said I was a Christian. I was going to church for a season. But then I was on YouTube and I saw this guy tell me that Christianity was used to control people. So now I'm not sure I should believe that anymore. Hmm. I used to believe Jesus. I was going to church. I felt like I was really on fire. I felt something at one time. But now I don't feel it no more. So I'm walking away because of my feelings. Because I never grounded what I believed in truth. I was emotional one Sunday, had committed some sins Saturday, Friday night. I just needed to take the pressure off. My friend drug me to church. I was dating this girl, and I knew I wouldn't go any further if I wasn't in church, so I just said, you know what, I might as well get to be the program. But now that I got her, I don't know if I believe this anymore. Hmm. I love Jesus. Everything's good. Man, I lost that job. Ooh, rent is due, and it's the fourth, and rent is due on the third. And I'm not sure how I'm going to pay for this rent. I called my parents to help me, but they can't even help me because they can't help themselves right now. Man, I lost this job. They broke up with me. Surely I can't believe in you, God. And he says, if you don't get yourself around some other believers, you're in danger of walking away and being the object of God's wrath. You see, Jesus didn't die just for you. He died for his church. And he brought you into it. And he expects you to honor and be a part of it. But when we don't, what we say is, Jesus, you died for something that I don't feel the same way about it that you do. That, that you created and you made it, but I think you just be making stuff to make stuff. So this church thing, yeah, you created, it's cool and all. I get why people go there. I get it, but I don't really know if I need to do all that. Every Sunday, for real. Why do I have to be there every Sunday? I could just turn on YouTube and watch my favorite YouTube preacher. I could travel anywhere in the world and stream online at my favorite church my favorite pastor. And Jesus is like, if you die, your favorite pastor from YouTube ain't coming to your funeral. When you're ready to get baptized, your pastor that you stream on the other side of the country that you love so much, you won't call him to get baptized. You know what you're going to do? 
If you die, your family is going to reach out to the preacher that was closest to you. If you got to get married, of course, good bishop, good bishop over there on the other side of the country, he's surely going to come and do your wedding. Not. If you get sick, oh, the right reverend, he's going to he's going to be here for me. You get sick, you know who's going to show up for you? A local pastor from a local church. So when Jesus creates a church, he does it with intentionality. Jesus wasn't bored. He said, I got to start a new business venture. Jesus wasn't trying to boss up. He's the boss. So is your perspective of the gathering of the saints, is it shaped by Scripture, or is it shaped by opinion? You need a church. You need to gather with the saints. Because our typical response to suffering in hard times, and they will happen, is withdrawal and concealment. And this is the antidote to both. The way through suffering and persecution as a believer, through hard times in your faith, is not detachment. That's what Satan wants. To get you by yourself. But God is so wise and so infinite that he brings you into a body to protect you and to grow you. And so if you're dealing with encouragement or if you've ever dealt with discouragement in church and I'm done. God wants you to draw near to him. You have access to God because of Jesus. That anytime you open up your mouth. And open up your heart and you come to God sincerely. You can go to him boldly. No matter what you've done. No matter how the odds stack up against you, you can go to God. Who don't want that kind of access? Because truthfully, if, 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 if I told some of you, you can get an audience with Jay-Z or Beyonce, you'd sell your left arm. Because you find value in it. You'll cancel everything. You'll take off work. You'll leave early. You'll risk getting fired. Because you value something about them and they don't even know you. But the one that died for you, that intricately wove you in your mother's womb and made you and created you for a reason, for a purpose, that sent his son to die for you, you are cavalier and derelict in your relationship with him. And when you die, you won't meet the celebrity that you follow on the gram. You'll be face to face with the living God. And I want to be able to stand in front of him. And I want him to look at me and say, I know you. You depart from me. I never knew you. But you, I know you. You weren't perfect, but you gave me your heart. I don't need you to be perfect. My son was already perfect for you. So I look at you as a son. I receive you. Job well done, good and faithful servant. Draw near to God because of the faith we have in Jesus. Hold on to the hope of the gospel. That if what God said, if God said it, then it's true. You can trust and believe it. That don't get, hold on to your hope. That on the other side of this is a great reward for you. That there are treasures being stored up in heaven for you for what you do here in the earth. And thirdly, love one another. 
Let us draw near with the faith we have in what Christ did for us. Let us hold on to the hope and let us love. That is so crazy that we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he says some sure he does some say some real familiar. And he in verses 22, 23 and 24, let us draw near with the heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope and let us watch out for one another to provoke love. And he introduces the three virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope and love. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let us draw near to God. Let's hold on to our hope. And let us love one another. And that's a community on mission. When we do that, we will be a community on mission. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for everything that's been said and done today. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.